Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. I need to begin with a content warning for domestic violence, a central topic in today's book. I'm bringing you a two-part episode to discuss Iris in the Dark, a new book by Alyssa Grossel Dickey. The first part of the episode is with the author of this eerie suspense novel that has a touch of romance, an important element for me as I navigated the difficult topic of domestic violence in our main character's past. The second part is with a longtime friend of mine, Rhonda Williamson, who is the director of Safer Path, the family violence shelter in Pleasanton, Texas. I wanted her input on this novel as someone who has made it her life's work to help women and children in these situations. I will include buy links for the book and donation links to Safer Path in show notes. Any donations you can make are greatly appreciated. Thank you for joining us today. Now, on to the show. Well, Alyssa Gressel Dickey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, you know, we have some friends in common, and I'm so glad they recommended this book, um, Iris in the Dark. And I did give some content warnings in uh, the recorded introduction that will come before our interview, because I think it's really important that people understand the content warnings for domestic violence and for human trafficking. Um, But I want to give you the opportunity to talk to readers about Iris in the Dark. So why don't you tell us what it's about? Okay, great. Um, Iris in the Dark is about an overprotective single mom who is given the opportunity and kind of reluctantly agrees to house sit at a hunting lodge on the South Dakota Prairie. And while she's there, she has, you know, some good things happen. She meets Sawyer, the caretaker, but also she suddenly hears a voice in the night. Um, Her son has found this old box of toys and that includes this old walkie-talkie. And she hears this creepy voice. And the more it happens, the more personal the voice gets. And she realizes that perhaps someone from her past has found her and she needs to face her past and kind of figure out this mystery of who this is and find some closure. I thought the walkie talkie was a really effective way to introduce a creep factor, which is not the only way you did, but the the walkie talkie in particular was really effective. Why don't you tell us about like where you came up with this idea? I will, because thank you. It's it's one of those like true stories that yeah yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't. I, to this day, I don't know what happened. But so a couple of years ago, when I when this story was formulating, like the story started with the character of Iris, and just kind of as I was formulating it, I'm like, I feel like there's something from her past that needs to come back, and how is that going to come back? And I couldn't quite get anything unique, and everything I had, my agent was like, oh, maybe not, you know. So one day, um my son was eight at the time and we were cleaning the toy room, which meant I was cleaning and he was playing. So he found these walkie talkies that he and his brother used to have. And he was playing with them as I was cleaning. And suddenly he had one in his hand, but we hear this child's voice coming. And I'm like, <laughs> did you give the other one to your brother? He's like, no, it's right there. And I'm like, let's shut this off. We're just, you know, in real life, I just kind of ignored it. And I'm like, let's pretend that was nothing. And I'm sure it was a frequency crosser picked up from, you know, a nearby house. But I suddenly realized, oh, I think I have my plot hole fixed and I know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is that cre- that kids' toys, even the ones you don't expect, 
to be creepy or totally creepy. I think people always go, oh, well, a marionette's creepy or dolls are creepy, but that's not the only thing that's creepy. You made a walkie talkie creepy in a completely believable way. But like my son's toy cars that make, um, like he has a lot of emergency vehicle toys and, uh, like, so an ambulance or a fire truck siren might start sounding out of nowhere. Like I'm the only one home. My son hasn't been home in hours, but suddenly I'll hear. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, what moved or what like level of frequency? pick up that moved and you're like I don't want to know but yeah I'm going to lock my door I, I tease or I joke with my husband about like I'm telling you this house is haunted you know? oh. you know, <laughs> even though I know. I know there's a reason it's like going off oops sorry kit, kittens coming into the picture um you know I I just I laugh because I know that uh it's not haunted but it sounds like it or it makes you feel like it right totally so. and then like if I start to think about because um, the house or the lodge was is based like in a, an old farmhouse and that's what I live in in South Dakota is it's been you know remodeled to a degree but it's it was built in 1911 and yeah. moved off the prairie and stuff and so like if I think too much about that especially at night then I will be like then I can really definitely think that my house is on 10. I like how you also had, so you had the the creepy kid toys, um, which are not supposed to be creepy, but they are, um, coupled with uh, really old pictures of people yeah. that were originally living there in the 1800s and stuff. Yeah. There's nothing I love more than scoping out old pictures, which is why Ransom Riggs's books, you know, oh, I love, yeah. yes, yes. Those were so um, important to me because I, I, there's, you know, they have the old photographs in there. I mean, he, yep. wrote, he wrote the peculiar, the home for peculiar children after finding the pictures and like, so let cute. the pictures kind of tell him what he thought the story should be. And right. so I love that you threw that in there. Thank you. And I, you know, I feel like in another world, I could have developed that more and maybe I, maybe I should, you know, hold on to that for something else. But, um, but I agree, like finding old pictures or seeing old pictures, there's just something about them that everyone just looks haunted. And I think part of it is when they had to sit so long for photos, right? Like they couldn't yes. smile or I don't know, or it was hard to hold your smile that long. I also went again, I think I talked a little bit about the, the prairie setting and how the isolation, because that is something I remember reading about back when I was a journalist here in town in South Dakota that, um, and I can't remember the source, so I feel bad, but um, prairie madness was Ooh. kind of thing where settlers that moved out, um, the, the winds here are, are like so strong and there was nothing out, you know, you moved out yeah. to the prairie and there was just you and, and the prairie wind basically. And so that was a phenomenon that some people talked about. And, yeah. and so that was something that I was interested in that I, I just wanted to kind of briefly touch on because I didn't know the entire history of it, but it was just interesting to me. I, one of the things I liked about that, I've had Wendy Dalrymple on the show and we talked about Gothic in unusual settings and unusual in that most people think of like an English manor on an open moor, but there's so like, you know, you can write a Gothic anywhere. And so I tend to write Texas Gothic. She writes Florida Gothic. And we were uh, talking about like Grady Hendrix really has a specialization in like South Carolina Gothic or, you know, when when he was talking on another interview about why aren't more people writing horror stories that take place in other places, aside from the typical expectation, because everybody's got something creepy to bring to the table every, or rather not everybody, well, of course, everybody, but uh, every environment. 
Oh yeah. You know where the creepy houses are, no matter where you live. Exactly. So the prairie I think is inviting for that. And I, that was kind of, um, in a way, and it sounds weird to say it was my love letter to the prairie because it's a love letter, but, but that was something like when I first moved here 20 years ago, like I'm from Northern Minnesota and it's very, where I'm from, it's trees, lakes, hills, like everything. And so coming out here, you can see for miles. I remember feeling like I was going to drive off the face of the earth. And so (laughs) very disconcerting the first time it was for me at least. And so, um, but then I grew to love it for some of the ways that Chris talks about, like, the sunsets are amazing yeah. and it has just become, you know, home, of course. But then I also thought it would be a good way to kind of really illustrate the isolation she's feeling right, with her own thoughts and everything and how something so beautiful can also just be really creepy and isolating when you, when you have that going on. And I love how you said it was your love letter, even though it's a scary story. Like, I love how you said it's your love letter because that's what we all wind up doing when we were writing these gothics. And because like, I always write something either on the Texas coast or in the Texas hill country. I don't even know all of Texas. Texas is way too big to know every landscape intimately because I mean, I don't, we have, we have swampland out in East Texas that I don't really know that much about, except having driven through like a time or two, Um, you know, that's a totally different type of thing. So I, you know, when I'm writing a story on the Texas coast, just like you said about how you felt sort of disoriented, I grew up like being able to pop over to the beach anytime I wanted. We would walk with my son because we lived over there when he was little, like tiny baby. Um, We would walk with him down to the beach. And when you're out like on a jetty or at the end of a pier, especially, or even on the beach when it's not that crowded and you're looking out you know, it does feel like it's the end of the earth, you know, and it's wonderful. (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) And I'm guessing like, I don't have prairie experience, but I'm guessing that's how it sort of feels. It it really does. When you're out Um, there. I can still remember the first time because I live in, in Aberdeen, which is, it's the third largest city in South Dakota. But as you can imagine, there aren't a lot of large cities in South Dakota. So it's 30,000 people, but it still feels like you're around people. And then the first time I had an assignment for the newspaper where I drove out west of town, like, because the more west river you get until you get to Rapid City, it's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty isolated. Well, that, I can still picture it. And we saw Sorry. this farmer. Oh, no, that's okay. I have a, I don't normally have my kitten in here when she's, uh, when I'm recording, but she's just very needy okay. for whatever reason right now. <laughs> beautiful. Um, but no, but I, then I remember seeing this piece of farm equipment in the distance and then beyond that nothing much else and it really did I'm like am I going to keep driving and drive off the face of the earth so I bet just, that's how it feels it really does it really does um and I think one of the photographers was with me at the time so that was a little helpful that I wasn't just on my own because I feel like I would have turned around maybe if it was if he wasn't but well because yeah you know that's that's mm-hmm. that whole disorienting sense absolutely yeah. I yeah. don't know if you've read The Hunger by Alma Katsu Ooh. but a lot of that is in the prairie because that is a Donner Party historical oh. horror story mm-hmm. oh. um I think it's been optioned too for a series, like a, a like a Netflix type of series. I don't know who's optioned okay. it, um, but you know, it's it's really one of the most haunting things I've ever read. And she uses the prairie so effectively. Um, it, that was the first time I had ever read it in that way. And it was just really marvelous. So yeah, it was, yeah. I love listening to your podcast because I get oh. so many, like I listen to your, 
episode with Megan Collins and I'm like okay what did they talk about someone saying and I'm sitting there on Goodreads trying to add all these oh good oh good (laughs) I am always just trying to connect readers to books and I love that you listen to Megan she is (laughs) such a hoot and I'm I'm still like it was one of those books that really tapped into my um obsession with like little miniatures and (laughs) I just started it on my Kindle so I'm excited well, and so speaking of like environments, so she goes out into this kind of remote, I love that it's remote, but it's 10 minutes from her house I know because that's <laughs> such a Texas thing to do too, because we're so spread out, Yeah, you know, yeah. we could take, I mean, 10 minutes for us on a wide open area is going to actually be a distance yeah. you know, versus like if you're driving in that. the middle of a city. I never thought about transiting that to city time because that's such a Midwest thing. And my, I feel like my books are very like Midwest trademark. Like I even had the Menards reference in there. Yeah. That I, I didn't think about translating that into miles because I'm like, yeah, there's, there's nobody on the highway. She had to go around a piece of farm equipment, but that's, you know, about it. <laughs> yeah. But 10 minutes in Austin is a very different story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm going to talk about like the motherhood aspect of it before I get into the, the domestic violence and then ultimately the romance, because I feel like the romance needs to come at the end of this interview, because (laughs) it's what needs to happen. I think in the end for all of us, um, but the things about being a mother that really, there were a couple of times where I had to put the book down and just go, Oh my God, that's exactly exactly me because I just I mean I'll start with one of the there's so many things like places I could start but like one of the things was really interesting to me is I was like she heard me or something (laughs) because she like was reflecting on on her child I guess he's asleep or maybe she's reflecting on him as a baby where she's like I want you to live a long and healthy and happy life you know and these are like this is like a ritual for her it's like what she wishes every time she wishes on a star is it that one yeah and you know that's what she wants for her kiddo and when my baby was when my son was he's 11 he's 11 and five foot eight he's not not little anymore but (laughs) my 15 year old he's my six foot baby yeah He's, but my child, my 11 year old has been taller than me for well over a year. It's embarrassing oh, for me. Like, I told him, I'm just like, his mother's a hobbit. Um, I feel like you still have to listen to me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, when he was a little baby and, you know, you, you wake up for the feedings, especially if you're nursing and yeah. you put on yo gabba gabba, if you're too tired <laughs> to talk or whatever, but you know, I would sometimes sing to him or tell him a story or whatever. But one of the things I would always like distinctively remember is like, he was one of those babies that liked to be held like over the shoulder. Um, so he's like looking out over mama's shoulder. Babies like to be held a different way. Some prefer cuddling. Um, but anyway, I, I remember putting my little hand on his head and feeling those little wisps of baby hair. And I would just kind of, you know, tell him I, and it was the same every single night, you know, may you live a long and healthy and happy life. And may you always, always feel love. And the thing of it is, is that like, I would say the same words every single night, but it wasn't just words. Like I felt them in my bones and I saw Iris do that. And I'm like, Oh, that's exactly what I would do every, and I know all mothers do it, but you know, know, it was just amazing to see it, you know, in words. I really did try to, that means a lot to me, first of all, because yeah. I've had that experience with reading where it felt like their author just pulled the thought out of your head. And so it means a lot to that I got it right. But 
but yes, I think it's, if anything, like Iris's fears, but and her yes. hope and love for motherhood is a hundred percent, you know, my own. Yeah. Um, and writing it was, was very, you know, it was a very beautiful experience to be honest, to put all that down. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, that was, I think that was the part maybe when she was, I, now that I'm thinking when she was thinking back to when he was a baby, because that is also something that happened, um, where I have this, you know, you have these distinctive, like the core memories from when your kids are little, but my youngest, my baby, who's now 10, I remember when he was two months old and I'm like trying to rock him to sleep is, you know, holding him down here in my arms. And I was, I started singing and he, he would like, he started cooing. So then I'm like, well, and I stopped <laughs> and he like, we were like singing back and forth, to each other, you know, and it was just like, and now he's very musical. So now I'm like, well, that was the first time he, he sang. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. Well, you know, um, the funny thing too is that I worked in education for many years and before, like even like through my teenage years, I was also doing a lot of work with kids as far as like, I'd help teach gymnastics and I was like a white teen volunteer and all that. And, um, I'd help teach swimming and, and I just, I always babysat. I always work with kids. And so even though I didn't have my child till I was 37, you know, I, I was, I had worked with the kids a long time and I thought, well, I have a lot of empathy for things that, oh, yeah. you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, being a mother is entirely different. And it's funny because you know, my doctor, my ob was pregnant with her third uh, while I was pregnant. And yeah. so like my second trimester, she was out on maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I'm delivering my baby, you know, you're 10 centimeters dilated, you're about to push. And I'm very <laughs> lucky because he came out, like he just popped out no problem, but oh, um, you, you are know. very lucky. <laughs> yeah, I, he was, that was the easiest he's ever been. <laughs> I love him so much, but yeah. he, um, you know, she's like, okay, she's down there. She's like, your worldview is about to change. And oh. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm 10 centimeters dilated. Like yeah. I've already got a lot of mother already going on. And do not get philosophical with me right now. <laughs> but she was right. What no yeah. one tells you is that like how morbid you become, <laughs> like every single terrible thing suddenly specifically has your child's face. Yeah, so yeah. no matter how much empathy you have for other children or parents, your child's face is suddenly the face of every terrible story yeah. you hear and see. And so you understand it in an inherently different way. Yeah. And so Iris, like, you know, people, it pisses me off actually that people are like, you're overprotective. And I'm like, no, she's a mother. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that's where, you know, I, I guess I've, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm overprotective in a way. No, you're not. You're my, a mother. Because <laughs> okay. my, my youngest, I'm Finn, his food allergies is based on my youngest as well. And so that was very authentic, like authentic and therapeutic to write about what she goes through. Mm. And, but it is, it's like, you know what? I would rather you see me as you know, shrill and overprotective view this random person, then something happened to him. I'd rather ask the question three times in a row just to make sure I understand that this is safe for him. You know, it's kind of like and that. That took me a while because yeah, it's like everybody wants to be liked, but at some point it's like, if you, if the consequence of my uh, vigilance, sorry, <laughs> is that you are going to think that I'm, 
you know, quote unquote crazy, like so many people like to say about women, then that's fine. Like, you know, I found that it's hard to get there. You know, it's important that we get there, but it's hard. Like my, my child's on the autism spectrum. And so I've had to fight, like you wouldn't believe for, for him in ways that I never thought I would have to. And it has, so this is why I'm like, no, we're mothers because we have to advocate for them, especially when they're not in a position to advocate for themselves, because the level of ignorance, even in educated people is still astounding. And there's a lot of things that are counterproductive, not counterproductive, counterintuitive to what we would ordinarily do. But when you have a child with a specific need, you have to change your paradigm And there's no way to expect everybody else to understand that paradigm. Right. So, I mean, as much as we know about food allergies, for example, there's still a bunch of assholes out there who are like, well, I shouldn't have to sacrifice my (laughs) peanut butter and jelly for you. Like, you know, there's still like, okay, this child could die, but if you're going to be Darwinian about it, then I am, you expect me to behave a certain way. (laughs) Like if you're going to be that way, then I'm going to be this way. So no, yeah, that's, it's, you're totally right that. Yeah, people just don't understand, and there are so many just different. I mean, I yeah, like I get that some people think that I'm sorry, parenting, like yeah. especially parenting children the same way, like being consistent, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. We've come to learn that you know because we have two different, very different, vastly different children, and we're it's not going to be the same, right? Like, yes, you want to be fair, and I, I think we're in a way we're lucky that you know my child with allergies is the younger because my older son understands for the most part. And my stepdaughter is an adult, certainly does. But that's one thing I've had to shift. And I think other people maybe don't understand is that your child is an individual and this is the best way to parent him. You try your best to be as fair and consistent among your children, but what worked for this child exactly is work for that child. Sorry, that took me a long time to get to where no, it's true for education too, and it's true for everything. So when I hear people like Bill Maher, just any rando talking yeah. about, well, it worked for me, and it's like, yeah, it worked for you, but okay. it didn't work for a lot of your peers. Right. And what and they don't care, you know, because it worked for them. And right. so it's like we are more informed now because, like, for yeah. example, with education the system of education that they are referring to that worked for them, that we've been trying to evolve and change um, is, was designed like in the industrial era to produce laborers. It had no other purpose. And so, (laughs) and so it's like, well, you know, if you are going to look at it that way, then you are trying to just produce a laborer who's not going to contribute in a meaningful way. Um, And so, you know, with modifications and adaptations and things, the older generations or maybe less informed people are going to say, well, you're just spoiling or everyone's a con, you know, just what are these accommodations even mean? Whether they really need it. Right. Whether it's a food allergy or, you know, a learning disability or whatever. And, uh, and actually I don't even like to say disability, it's a neurodivergence. Um, and so, cause like my son is brilliant with certain things Mm there's like, he has a little trouble over here, but maybe over here, he is profoundly advanced, you know? And so it's just his neurodivergence, you know, but we need to accommodate that because he's not 
you know, he's not meaningless as a human and the same thing with like with food allergies. And so I, I, this is all to say that (laughs) we need to move away from this concept of I'm overprotective. I think we're doing exactly what we need to do as parents. And when people call her overprotective in that book, I think it is very indicative of the gaslighting people keep trying to do for us. And as you were, as you said earlier in the interview, this whole, like women are crazy thing. Like they, they always look for a reason to say that about, about women. That was part of what, but it's nonsense. the first, um, I think I maybe said that this, the story first came as in a, in a character that I thought of. And even I, as I was thinking, I'm like, oh, she's that Snoopy person at work. And she's the one that always, you know, like has, and I'm like, but this is a main character because we are all flawed. We were all Iris sometime. We we're all too right. much. And so it kind of built on this, you know, women and especially moms and overprotective moms in air quotes, um, we're told that we're over the top and we're, you know, we're worrying too much and our fears are unwanted. And I just wanted to make a main character who it's like, you know what, this, this is the way she is. And we're all Iris sometimes. We're all flawed yes. because we were all just trying to do what's best for our children or our loved ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's go into the tough part of the book. Um, and then we'll end on the romance because I really need to. <laughs> I need that to be the path. (laughs) So let's talk about the tough part. Um, You know, and that way also I'll know, like be able to tell my, my listeners, like at this point, we will be talking about domestic violence and human trafficking. So do you want to talk about why this factored so heavily into this book? Sure. Um, I think, like I said, started with the character. And as I was writing initially, it was like, I knew she had a dark past and that I wanted her to, you know, to be able to have some closure to it. But the more I wrote and the more her character developed, I kind of saw more of it. And then even during the editing process, um, I was encouraged to kind of delve into it further and include more flashbacks and, and everything. And so that really, I kind of finally saw this then as a way to shed some light on an issue that people I love, people I know and love have lived through. And, and that is, and even so it's basically, it's like, I wrote it for the women I know and the women I don't know who have gone through this because it is such a prevalent issue because, and I, and I've said that to people that if you don't think you know someone who has experienced intimate partner violence, it's probably just that you don't know that. No, right. Um, And so that was, I I wanted to shed light on it and kind of make, have it be something that hopefully people can take away hope and, and see a light in the darkness for them. That was kind of my, my purpose for it. Well, it's important. And, you know, even my journey through this podcast and through the book, you know, I was all over the place because like I said, it was, it was a very readable story. There's a romance like from the early on in the book that, and had that not been there early on in the book, I wouldn't have been able to keep going, but I'm always down for a romantic story too. (laughs) Um, But uh, we'll get to that. But anyway, it was just, you know, because it is such a triggering topic, but it, you know, and I had reached out, as I told you to an author friend of mine um, and a podcaster who both were like, you don't have to do this or you can face it head on either way. Um, you know, they, they, 
kind of presented two different options for me and, and the pros and cons of those options. And I'm very, very appreciative of it um, because, you know, it triggered me one out of every three people, like, you know, I have my own experience with it personally, and I've lost a friend. And so it was just very like accurately portrayed to the point where I was like, this is the, it was rough, you know, <laughs> those parts, because things that were incredibly accurate were not just what happened to her from the abusers. I will say there's more than one mm-hmm. um, because his friends are dicks too. But, uh, but like the police officer who was gaslighting her and made her, her making her feel horrible and not believing her, not taking her report, like telling her she's a problem. All of those things are very real. And so, you know, a lot of times people get mad about whole, the whole defund the police thing. And I think the case in Uvalde is probably making people rethink that, but anyone who knows anything about domestic violence will understand that there's also that reason because like my friend who I'm going to interview for the segment after your, your interview, she's the director of a shelter and she has people on staff specifically to basically combat not just police, but judges who like just don't want to believe the women for anything, no matter how much physical evidence is there, they try to blame the women, right? No matter like the doctors can be there. They still try to blame the women. And so that every single domestic violence shelter has to have dedicated staff to fight police and judges. It's amazing. I mean, So I was just like, this is tough because that was so accurate. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry that you. No, it's just. Hard. No, I, but I do. I mean, I, I wanted to shed a light, but I also. It's important you know, to talk about. It. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we don't talk about it, here's the reason why I went through with this conversation is because, you know, I had, I had advantages that Iris didn't have mainly that. I had friends that drove him nuts. They, I mean, they drove him nuts because I, I continued to have friends and resources. Like I put a two-year plan in place and it took me two years to execute my plan to like get myself out of a terrible situation. But I was able to do that because I had a network of friends who were there for me at the drop of a hat and always would be. Um, and I, so that's an advantage I had that a lot of women don't have. Um, but you know, my friends, I just thought about her, like, should I move forward? So I have a friend who was murdered by her husband and she had not told people about what was going on. She was in the middle of trying to get a divorce and I had been with her the afternoon she was murdered. She was murdered 45 minutes after we said goodbye to each mm-hmm. other. And so I, you know, and she was, she, she had left to go home because she was an art teacher that had a studio in her house where she would teach like small classes of kids and the kids found her. Ooh. And so I know that had she not had that, shame associated with the situation, she would have sought help because I think her children knew and were trying to get 
help for her, but oh. she was so embarrassed, yeah. you know, and it was just like, we need to stop blaming our, that's part of blaming ourselves, right. you know, and right. that's part of the, the, what pisses me off is when people were like, well, I would never put up with that. I would never right. do this. And it's like, you don't know what happened. You don't know at all. Right. You don't like, know what they do to you. Like and yeah. they, and they, they start by knocking out your sense of confidence. So right. when that happens, like, you don't know, you, no one knows. And so it's like, I, I just, we need to stop judging other women. We need to stop judging each other because this happens to men too, actually. Oh, right, um, right. And so I, I don't even want to talk about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp because I'll have no. all kinds of things to say, but like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, that's not even your book. So, but no, I just feel I, I like I moved forward with it because I felt like I owed it to my friend as, as someone who probably would have sought help had this, had the shame not been there. Yeah. You know, I had friends and, and it's like, they knew something was weird about him, you yeah. know, um, but they didn't, they didn't know everything, but they knew enough. And so right. I had that, but I, I, I feel like we owe it to other, other people to, to knock that down. So. Right. And I agree. I'm I, sure um, that's probably why you wrote the book. Well, exactly. And that's, I feel like that as women were often not believed, just like you said, and, and again, I'm not. Yeah, just men and what right, right. And everything, but but it it's you know the statistics are there that it's most likely the victim is going to be a woman, mm-hmm. and any of us, you know, you when it comes to resources and self confidence, like you said, like I feel like we all have the potential and to to be put in that position, and yeah. like you said, thank God you had the friends and the relationships, mm-hmm. um, but and kudos that's amazing that you put in a two-year plan for because that is something that's I mean I couldn't imagine not having resources to, to get out yeah. when you need to because that is one of the biggest barriers I think um but yes that is I just I want it to be something like you said that that people talk about that people can get help that there's not shame to it at all yeah. no victim blaming and that everyone has someone that believes them and believes in them and mm-hmm. and build- yeah. Um, that's why, that's why the whole Johnny Depp, Amber Herb thing was so hard. It's like, I, I'm not going to even get into it, but it was just no. like, I think women everywhere and, and victims everywhere rather were just sitting there going, you know, it's so important that we listen. And so I, I right. just, you no, know, I, um... it was tough to get through the book for me in those situations, because it, I had experience with that, not just being, but my friend, at, you know, and that was just very triggering, but at the same time, it was important. So, you know, I, I can't imagine how hard that was to write. So. Well, I, I really appreciate you reading it. And I, I don't want to get into the the trial either. Cause I didn't watch. I, I honestly didn't. I purposely watch. didn't. I saw memes, but over. You, you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't go anywhere on social media without it, but it was the only thing I thought from it is how horrible for survivors to see all these yeah. memes, everything going on. And I'm just like, what are people thinking? Like, I realize yeah. you get on social media and it, some people, you know, find it, you feel like, oh, this isn't real life. We're just joking. Or they but think it's funny. It oh, wasn't funny. No, not at all. You, know? you, you don't believe her for some reason. Yeah. Why would you put that on there so that people you know in your life that yes. are surviving, they would know now not to ever go to you or to not, right. you know, they would, this might prevent them from coming forward. And that's, 
yeah, what's really frustrating and why I think it is important to have characters like Iris where she's not perfect. She's, you know, but she should be believed. She deserves to be believed. She deserves to have her story told. Why do we need to be perfect? I'm right. so sick of that. <laughs> the likable female character. Oh, it's like, you know what? I'm unlikable a lot of days. I will admit that. So You know, as a, it may make you feel better to know that there were Goodreads reviews that talked about how likable she was. And it's probably because she's human. I, I hope so. Because that's you know, what I, I got some that, like I saw one DNF, too many unlikable characters. And I'm like... <laughs> sorry does everyone you know in your life are they always perfect do they say the right thing are they never crabby or you know like right I mean of course I stopped looking at my husband and be like don't look at me because I'm not and I do never engage and everyone has a right to their own opinion so right 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 don't want readers to think that I'm like on good reason I just thought it was funny that you have written about her as a slightly unlikable person but there were people who were like she's completely likable (laughs) no I my defense mechanism to some early reviews I saw was that people were saying and and compared to arguably compared to my first book where um the main character Simone isn't like because Iris just has this where she's called the cops one too many times you know arguably that oh noise ordinance you know she's she's gonna call in her neighbors because someone has to type thing right where so she's got that kind of you know side to her whereas my first character Simone didn't so I didn't what I what what I heard about my first book, the bad reviews were from all the swearing. In it, so. Oh Whatever. my gosh, that's so funny because you kind of know who does those things. Um, there's I love Rachel Hawkins, and I was looking at reviews for, I forget if it was for the Wife Upstairs or or the Reckless, the Reckless Girls, oh, but yeah. uh, one of those you can tell you can tell. I think it I forget one of those apparently refers to Republicans in a negative way. And I forget which one it is and that like all the one-star reviews were people who are like, you know, she uses the F-bomb too much and talks about Republicans in a bad way. And it was the same, like all the way down. It's like, okay, well then I don't care. Right. That's at least you can, you can look at it and say yeah. that doesn't bother me or, you know, that's. Yeah. I thought that was funny. Um, well, let's get to the fun like okay. the romance, because I need to go there. <laughs> so, um, so something I thought was interesting about this, um, which was true for me in life, there was this, this was one of the moments of my, of the book where I was like, this is freakishly close to my own path, um, which was, you know, a, a couple of people had a problem with the quote unquote insta love, right. but you actually address that in the book as yeah. when you're older, you can kind of cut through the bullshit way easier, especially when you've been through trauma, you recognize it immediately. Um, and you know, immediately what to look for, even in the most subtle ways. And that right. was true for me too, because right. once I extricated myself from that situation, I was perfectly happy to live a life of cats and books and sewing and gardening. Which is, sounds like an amazing life. <laughs> living the Hufflepuff life, right? Yeah. And I, <laughs> <I'm a> little... <laughs> I was perfectly happy. And then mm-hmm. I would just date, you know, and I just had fun, like, Sometimes it was dating. Sometimes it was dating and, you know, and it was fine either way because I was like, whatever, I'm just going to live my life and be happy. Um, So when I met my husband, we were actually friends for a couple of years and I was very steeped in my, I don't want a serious relationship. So he 
waited it out and I had no idea. And so whenever I just kind of looked at him one day and I was like, are we, we're going to get married, aren't we? And we, he's like, yeah, I hope so. And I was like, you know, and it was just kind of like, we just suddenly knew. And I, we have been in like delirious marriage bliss for 13 years because you can cut through the bullshit. Yeah. Do know, like I married at 35. You do know, like, you know who you are and what you want. Yes. Yes. And they weren't, that's what I'm like. They're not 15 and no offense to you know no but it's different you're just different at that age and I tried to address that right away she figured out that Sawyer is someone that she feels safe with like she just felt that and sometimes you can just feel that from someone and so I I I tried to make it but then I'm like you know if some people think it's insta love that's okay I don't you know that's that's fine because to me it was he's a very important part of the story and she she gets to have her happy ending she or Sorry, spoiler alert. I don't no, it is happily ever after. And I think that we're going to have readers who are going to need to know that there's a happily okay. ever okay. after to Good. get through the difficult part. And know? that she deserves it. And kind of like, yes, she deserves where, it. Right. And where it's, you know, everyone deserves it. And Thank it's okay you. to want it as well. Like it's okay to want your yes. hammer because I find that you can be your strongest self when you have other people supporting you, other people who love you and know you and and love who you are, no matter what supporting you, that that's when you're at your strongest. Yes. So that, that was important to me. Well, I think as a reader, I kind of caught it like the moment she realized that he was the one, the chef who like insisted that no one give her any problems for the way, you know, for the food demands that she needed for her kid. And that he was like, Oh, it's Iris. I'll, I'll make the food, you know, the way her kid needs it. And nobody better give her any crap about it. And (laughs) like, once she realized that I think as a mother, who's had to fight for everything, including her own life, like that meant a lot to her. And hundred percent. That was a huge, thank you for recognizing that. Cause that was to me, the most magic part of the book was when she realized that that was him that yeah well so my husband okay so I had a house um and he you know like I said we never even dated and so he came like the week he came to visit he was just coming to visit we got a hurricane warning and instead of like well I gotta book it back to Austin he got on my roof to check the shingles and he started checking out my car to make sure we could get out. And he started like, do, you know, doing everything around my house. And, and I'm like, I know you lived in Florida through five hurricanes, but <laughs> you don't have to do this. And he had gone to the grocery store without me knowing gone to the grocery store and got all the supplies for my cats. And Aww. I was so just like she, Iris found like, okay, he was willing to feed my kid, whatever he needed. He, my guy had like gone into got all this stuff. That's when I looked at him and I was like, mm-hmm. with the cat food in my hands, I'm like, we're getting married, aren't we? Oh, <laughs> he was like, yes, I hope so. You need to write that story. <laughs> I, I did actually, it's been published, but it was under, it's under a different name. Okay. Well, you'll have to like send me that link. <laughs> um, but yeah, so to, in other words, and I'm not trying to keep bringing things back to me. I'm just trying no, to that's, speak that's to the fact thing. that these can be real. And the reason why it's important in this context is because anybody listening who feels like they don't deserve the HEA, anybody listening who feels like they're going through the similar experience or 
is in the maybe very beginning stages of starting to recognize like there's something wrong here. Right. They, they can have a happily ever after no matter what they're going through. And and it doesn't even have, like I said, I was perfectly happy with the Hufflepuff life. They can live that you, you can be happy. You're worth the happy, like do whatever you can to get the happy. Yeah because you deserve it. And that's why it was important to me to like, kind of go, look, this actually happened to me. I am not a fictional story, but my story went down very similarly to Iris. And you might happily ever after. Yeah. That's very important to share. And I like the point that you made that you don't need it, but it's there because I I did try to put that in the little bit at the end, right before the happily ever after is that she sitting on her porch, realizing that she is okay. And she got through this. She can be okay on her own, but she wants to be with him like that. Yeah. Yeah. And like when we're having the conversation with Lowell and she's like, and he's like, what do you want to do? What, what do you want? And she's like, mm-hmm. I can finally just focus on what I want and what's good for me. And also going back the, you know, the reason she, or one of the reasons she was able to get out was to save her son but mm-hmm. it was important for me to realize or for and I tried to get that in that for her to realize that she was important enough to save as well because I do think as women and moms we put so many other people first yes and it's like well my kids need this and this and that's you know of course your kids are your life and you, that's everything but at the same time your happiness and health and well-being yes. is worth it as well and I I hope that message comes across as well it so does many- and I and I like that she has people who made sure she understood that yes you know that's so important but even if you don't have those people listeners we're telling you we're telling you that you are worth it you are you are worth every good thing and yes you deserve the world Oh, well, that on that note, thank you so much for joining me on your lunch break today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to talk to you. That concludes my section with author Alessa Grossel Dickey. And I will now be interviewing Rhonda Williamson, who is the director of the Safer Path Family Violence Shelter in Pleasanton, Texas. All right, Rhonda. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It really means a lot to me as a longtime friend of mine and as someone who took the time to read a book that's kind of hard hitting, um, you know, but I, I really wanted your input. I think you've spent a life or a career rather, you know, at heading up domestic violence shelter, saving women's lives, their children's lives, their animals' lives. And so I think you could speak a lot to the real life experience of what Iris is going through in this book. So thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Agatha. So why don't you give me your first initial thoughts on what you thought of the book, how it represented domestic violence, how it represented trauma, what Iris experienced? I thought this was a really well thought out survivor's story. And it it showed a lot of care in listening to survivors and really painting the picture of Iris's experience as a survivor. She's a was abused as a child, had a lot of emotional neglect that led to um, her choice in a partner that chose to exercise power and control to uh, intimidate and frighten her throughout their relationship. 
and on her journey as a survivor, like she got out and that wasn't the end of her story. It was the beginning of this story for her. And that really resonated with me. I like that. I like that a lot, that that was the beginning, you know, because we don't even spend like the story doesn't even begin there. The book doesn't even begin there. So you're right. It is like, that's the beginning of her journey. Um, But what happened to her in the past is so critical to all of her behaviors. And there is, there are some really important people who don't understand the significance of that in the book. And I think it's accurate. You know, you've, it is you know, you've got people in your shelters that are advocates on behalf of your clients because police or judges or, you know, whoever that they would need to turn to don't always believe them. And it makes people reluctant to even try. I like the people that should be fighting for them, make it harder. If they don't understand the neurobiology of trauma and how that changes your brain, how that changes your perception of the world, how that changes how you function within society. It makes it difficult to ask for help. And if the first person you tell, which is often law enforcement, doesn't believe you, it's that much harder to call and ask for help a second time and tell somebody else a third time because you have that wall already built that nobody's going to believe what I have to say. Right, right. Well, let's think about how Iris reacted to some people versus the love interest in the story. So with some, she was sort of hyper-conscious of behaviors and always suspicious that, you know, if she saw a child that didn't seem to be right with the right parent or the right adults, you know, she would worry about it. But then, you know, she also trusted this new man in her life with her child in a way. And there's reasons why I think that is, but I didn't know if you wanted to speak to that or as, as something that you also see. In what I respected life. about Iris is when she saw danger, she took action on that. And she had, like, she was committed to this not happening to some, not on her watch. Like if she was able to see it, she was going to take action and do something about it. And that is risky and terrifying. Yeah. And she, she stepped up and did it from a neurobiological standpoint for a lot of survivors, you can call it post-traumatic stress disorder, or Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's the impact of trauma is it changes the way your brain detects danger. So um, I like to say there's a smoke detector in your brain. And when you've been exposed to the level of trauma that Iris has, that smoke detector is very big and very sensitive. And so things that might not seem dangerous to other people is going to set that smoke detector off for Mm -hmm. survivors of major trauma. I think that's important because there are a couple of reviews I saw that didn't believe in like the, the quickness of the love interest that she had in the forming of that relationship. But knowing what you just said is, is important to understanding Iris's ability to trust this person, as well as the fact that he wasn't necessarily a complete stranger. When she realized that this was the guy who had been cooking her son's food for two years and had like, and she had sure. trusted him with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. She, and she, and he also made sure, like the waiters and waitresses would say, well, the, the cook, you know, made sure to tell us, you know, so that he was advocating for her kid when even she wasn't. So I think there was back to being believed, right? He right. believed that the food allergy was real and that he could help. Yeah. And I think that spoke a lot too. So I actually, 
I, I did buy that love story and how it flowed. Um, and what it was you- also pretty far out on her journey as a survivor. Like she had been yeah, out of that abusive relationship and had been on her own for a while and had done her, she'd done some, she'd done some of her work. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to speak to any patterns or things that, you know, people out there hearing this episode may want to be aware of or things that they could do if they feel like they are, you know, at risk in any way? So if you are in a situation and you need help, the easiest way would be to reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is one 800 799 7233. And that hotline is answered 24 7 365 by trained advocates who will be able to connect you with resources in your community and will be able to provide you with emotional support and some advocacy and some direction over the phone while you're on that call with them. What kind of services might you guys provide that people wouldn't even expect? I mean, something, a lot of times I think people just think that you're just a shelter as far as like a place, a roof over your head, but there's so much more that you guys do. What can you tell our listeners about what services they can expect? Most shelter programs are very, very client centered. So that means every case is different. So what you need is going to be different from the next person that comes in. And our case management program is really designed to meet you where you are, help you reach the goals that you want to reach. So for some people that is getting a protective order, uh, getting a new, new apartment, moving into transitional housing. Um, it, for some, it's getting a divorce. Uh, for some, it's help modifying a custody agreement that keeps them in danger. For others, it's getting into a job training program because they now need to support themselves. For some, it it's it's what you said, like they're coming into shelter with the clothes on their back because they have fled in the middle of the night with their kids with the help of law enforcement. And we're going to give them a safe place to sleep with a door that shuts behind them where they can decompress and have a few sleep cycles before we're asking them to make any difficult decisions. We have a thrift store where we will meet whatever material need that they have that we can so that you know, you're know you not staying somewhere with just the clothes on your back. You've got the beginnings of a new life for yourself. And every case looks different. We've also moved to like that client centered is really important. Like whatever a client says they need, we're gonna work to do that. And sometimes that. I'm going to come in for a couple of nights and I need a bus ticket to go stay with family out, out of state. And that's what we're going to do for you. If that's what you want, that's what we're going to do. Wow. That is so, I mean, and I know you have legal advocates that will help them and everything. I mean, there, it's just, there's so many services that people don't even think about that, you know, don't necessarily require them to sleep there. They're just service right. to provide. Right. And most of a at least 50% of our services are provided to clients that don't ever come and stay with us. They have a safe place to stay. You know, they can go in with a sister or their mom or their brother or what, you know, family will take them in or a best friend will take them in and it's a good safe place for them, but they need some support in other ways. And we get to do those things too. So I know that you said you have a thrift store and I know that shelters take donations of all kinds of things. What are things you're looking for and things you're not in case anybody wants to help out a shelter, make donations? 
We have a monthly needs list and most shelters will push that out. And it's a giant house with lots of people in it. So all the things that you need at your home, we always need shampoo. We always need conditioner. We always need hair dye because it's nice to have the opportunity to reinvent yourself while you're in shelter, if that's important to you. And it's the things that you need in your daily life. So diapers, feminine hygiene products, um, toiletries, a good moisturizer that makes you feel good and healthy and safe in your own skin. That's really good to know. Cause I think sometimes people will inundate you with a lot of things you just can't necessarily use, but the, the intention is there. So those are yeah. good keep in mind. Um, and do you want to share your particular, like if anybody says, well, thanks Rhonda for coming on the show, let me donate to the shelter where you work because you started in a rural community here. You, from the ground up, you started this shelter for a place that needed it, but didn't have one. So I would like, you know, anybody listening that wants to make a donation to help your shelter out, would you mind sharing that information with us? Thank you so much, Agatha. We are Safer Path Family Violence Shelter in uh, Pleasanton, Texas in rural Atascosa County. Awesome. And what's the website? At Safer Path, S-A-F-E-R-P-A-T-H, F as in family, V as in violence, S as in shelter.org. Okay. And they can make donations directly from the website. Awesome. Directly there. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you reading the book and giving us your insight. Thanks for joining us today on She Wore Black. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter if you follow the links on our website at sheworeblackpodcast.com. We have some great episodes coming your way, so be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by shopping at our online bookstore at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. Every purchase you make through our storefront, be it the books on my lists or any books you find in a search from our front page, will support the cost that goes into show production as well as supporting independent bookstores nationwide. Thanks again for joining us today and happy reading. Mm -hmm.